Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Casus Belli Project. To start, I'd like to thank Joshua from New Mexico for becoming a $10 a month patron. If you would like to contribute to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash podcasts. That's podcasts with an S. You can also email me at casusbellyguy at gmail.com or visit casusbellypodcast.com to get a little more information on each episode. In this episode, we finally finish the Battle of Guadalcanal and the New Guinea campaign. Then, we kind of abruptly shift over to the North Africa campaign. I don't like having episodes that cover completely unrelated topics, but sometimes I can't help it and I just have to go with it. This is one of those episodes. But, it does bring up the subject of narrative flow again. If this were a book, I probably would go with the more George R.R. Martin style, if any of you have read his A Song of Ice and Fire series, where he jumps between characters and tells the story essentially chronologically. But, because this is a podcast and it's more stream of consciousness, I think it's easier to do it sort of the Tolkien style, where I tell a big chunk of one part of the story, like Guadalcanal, then, when that's done, go to another big chunk like North Africa. It means I have to jump forward and back in the timeline a little bit, but I think it makes each storyline smoother and gives me more narrative as well as research focus. So now we come to the end of Act 2, if you frame the Second World War as a five-act drama, that is. I know I've described it as a three-act drama before, but I think maybe the five-act model fits a little better. The prologue began at Versailles and continued right up until September 1939, being covered in Episodes 1 and 2. Act 1 began with the invasion of Poland and went to Pearl Harbor. Act 2 began with Pearl Harbor and ran until the end of 1942, essentially, with the North Africa Campaign and Guadalcanal coming to an end. Act 3 begins with American landings in Morocco, codenamed Operation Torch, until the Russians turn the tide in the east when the Siege of Leningrad ends roughly about that time. Then we begin Act 4 with D-Day, which runs until Germany surrenders. Then we have a short fifth act, which is essentially the defeat of Japan and ends with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Keep in mind, this is a very rough outline and is a construct or framing device. You kind of have to squint and let things get a little fuzzy for the axe to work, but I think it's a good framework for telling the story of the war. It also doesn't really consider the Eastern Front much, partly because that was kind of one continuous thing. Sure, it has its own events and trends, but it's a little harder to map onto the five-act structure. Okay, that's enough of my musings on how to structure the show. Let's begin episode 30, Rainy Marching in the Painful Field. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget?
Following the indecisive Battle of Santa Cruz, both the Japanese and the Americans resorted to committing more men and material to Guadalcanal and the Eastern Solomons. Not for the first time since the battle began, the Japanese had superior strength on land and at sea. Admiral Kondo commanded two carriers, four battleships, 11 cruisers, and 49 destroyers, whose chief purpose was to protect the 11 transports and 14,000 men of the Nagoya Division steaming toward Guadalcanal to reinforce the Japanese position there. These men, General Hyakutake would add to his command of 30,000, as compared to Vandegrift's now 23,000 strong, some of whom were on Tulagi, not Guadalcanal. Hyakutake could also expect additional reinforcements from China and throughout the Far East. Vandegrift's marines would arrive first on November 11th, when Halsey began sending everything he could to Guadalcanal. They would be greeted by a Japanese air raid as soon as they arrived on the island. A second convoy would arrive on November 12th with the 182nd Infantry. As the convoy of Hyakutake's first 14,000 steamed southward, the Imperial Japanese Navy shelled Henderson Field once again. Once, the night before they arrived, by battleships Haiei and Kirishima, and again the night after on November 13th, with six cruisers and six destroyers. During the day on November 13th, the Tokyo Express would bring Hyakutake's reinforcements ashore. At the same time, the combined fleet under Kondo sailed about 150 miles north to provide air support along with the Japanese land-based aircraft at Rabaul. The air raid on the landing troops alerted Halsey to the fact that the Japanese combined fleet was lurking somewhere nearby once again. He dispatched the Enterprise, still crippled from the Battle of Santa Cruz, forcing it to undergo repairs while underway, along with the battleships South Dakota and Washington from Noumea. They were a long way off, though, and the battleships were slow. A stopgap measure would have to be put in place to halt the Japanese reinforcements until the main element could arrive. Thus began the three-day Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, or Third Battle of Savo Island. In one of the opening salvos, the Haie landed a full broadside from her main battery into Callahan's flagship, the San Francisco, killing him and the entire bridge crew. The ship kept fighting, though, the guns firing on local control. Unfortunately, her shells were landing in the heavy cruiser Atlanta, killing Admiral Scott, the commander at Cape Esperance. The Americans were not the only ones succumbing to the chaos of battle, though, and many Japanese rounds landed in Japanese vessels. By either luck or fortune, the Japanese fleet suffered more damage than the American, despite its superiority in guns and tonnage. Of the American fleet, every ship took damage except the destroyer Fletcher and the Barton, Monson, Laffey, Cushing, Juno, and Atlanta were all either destroyed or sunk. For their part, every Japanese ship was struck and two destroyers were sunk. Most importantly, though, the Haie took a severe beating. She was struck an incredible 85 times, and the Japanese turned to escape. With the Tokyo Express steaming down the slot, Admiral Turner dispatched Rear Admiral Daniel Callahan with five cruisers and eight destroyers to disrupt the Japanese. Callahan deployed his ships in a line in an attempt to repeat the crossing of the T at the Battle of Cape Esperance. That was about as complex as Callahan's plan was, and at 2.15 in the morning on November 13th, he found the Japanese and entered into a savage battle. His 8-inch guns fired off salvos, echoed by the Japanese 14-inch battleship guns. By all rights, the American fleet should have been torn to shreds, but due to the confusion of night fighting and Callahan's sheer tenacity, he managed to accomplish his goal of preventing the 14,000 Japanese infantry from landing. He paid a heavy price, though. 
With the ship-on-ship -ship action of the first night complete, the aircraft from Henderson Field descended on the retreating Japanese and preyed on the Hiei in a race to see who could get the final blow. Six American ships went down in the battle, and the Americans threw dozens of dive bombers after her. The six Zeros that had been sent to protect Hiei were all shot down. The Hiei received merciless punishment, but refused to go under. Out of spite and resignation to reality, the Japanese scuttled her in the night before anyone could get the bragging rights to taking down a Japanese battleship. Hiei was stopped, but the Japanese brought in their six cruisers and destroyers to shell Henderson Field the next night. They threw a thousand rounds at Henderson, and probably would have fired more if it weren't for six torpedo boats that emerged from the small rivers of Tulagi to drive them off. The shelling had destroyed two planes and damaged sixteen. Modest work for such destructive intent. After the night's battle and shelling, the Japanese fleet once again believed their work was done, and sent the transports down to land their troops, ignoring their normal procedure of landing troops at night. They were, of course, wrong. Aircraft not only from Henderson Field, but from all over the Solomons descended on the convoy and tore it to pieces. Dauntless dive bombers and Avenger torpedo bombers launched their fish and dropped their bombs. The fighter escorts fought off the Zeros, and newly arrived P-38 Lightnings showed up to strafe the destroyers. The carnage was brutal. The water turned red with blood and black with oil. Bodies, alive and dead, bobbing everywhere around the sinking ships. The plane strafed the men in the water, though, knowing that every man who made it ashore was one more the Marines and soldiers on Guadalcanal must fight. So they did their deadly work and slaughtered the men in the water, doing strafing run after strafing run, earning the nickname the Buzzard Patrol. The battle, if you could call it that, continued until dusk, when seven of the eleven transports were sunk, and four staggered to shore and beached themselves to get the men ashore. Of the 14,000 that Hyakutake expected to join his ranks, only about 5,000 survived, and only a fraction of those actually made it to Guadalcanal. The Noigoya Division had essentially ceased to exist. Despite the losses, Admiral Kondo was not deterred. For the third night in a row, he sent ships to bombard Henderson Field. He believed that the only opposition would be the flotilla of PT boats that had driven off his destroyers and cruisers the night before. So on the night of November 14th to 15th, the battleship Kirishima, escorted by the heavy cruisers Otago and Takao, cruised down the slot to Iron Bottom Bay. He did not suspect the Americans would commit any sizable force, especially not battleships, to repel him in the narrow waters north of Guadalcanal. Rear Admiral William Willis Augustus Lee aimed to prove Kondo wrong and brought up the battleship South Dakota and Washington with four destroyers for the second day of the Third Battle of Savo Island. The torpedo boat skippers had no idea Admiral Lee's force was approaching, however, and almost fired on him. The only thing that convinced them he wasn't Japanese was his proficiency at cursing in English, which no Japanese could possibly imitate, so they let him pass. At 1.15 in the morning on November 15th, there was a sudden series of explosions, and huge plumes of water shot into the sky. A spread of Japanese torpedoes had struck the destroyers Preston, Benham, and Wok. Next, the Japanese searchlights found the mighty South Dakota, allowing the Japanese to light her literally and figuratively with a cacophony of shells. The Americans were returning fire, however, and the Washington unleashed a salvo over 16 inches on the Kirishima, sending her to the bottom. With Kirishima no longer a target, the battleships turned their massive guns on the Japanese cruisers. They did not sink the Otago and the Takao. They would have to return to port for repairs until at least 1943, however. 
The rest of the Japanese flotilla withdrew, with them yielding the field, or I suppose the sea, to Admiral Lee. This was the first proper battleship engagement since Jutland in the First World War. Sure, the Second World War yielded plenty of engagements and pursuits for battleships, but this was the first real brawl in decades. The Second World War is known for its massive carrier battles and the U-boats of the Atlantic, but the good old-fashioned gunboat slugfests of the Solomons campaign are often forgotten. After three and a half days of fierce fighting and two major naval engagements, the United States had won the Third Battle of Savo Island. General Vandegrift was grateful for Halsey's commitment to his men, but he would only remain in command of all Allied forces on the island for another three weeks. On December 9, 1942, command passed to General Patch of the Army. Vandegrift had done splendidly during his six months in command of the 1st Marine Division and the rest of his task force, but with more Army units arriving, an Army general was placed in command. The forces committed on Guadalcanal had swollen from a mere few regiments in August to essentially an entire corps, 14 Corps, by December. Under fell the 1st Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division, 25th Infantry Division, the 23rd Americal Division, and the late edition 43rd Infantry Division. With such a large force, General Patch went over to the offensive. At the same time, debate raged in Tokyo as to whether or not to continue the defense of Guadalcanal. After fierce argument in which physical blows were exchanged, Premier Tojo landed with the evacuation party and ordered General Haikutake to begin withdrawing his troops. The battle would continue to smolder until early 1943, when, on February 9th, patrols from the 132nd Infantry and the 161st Infantry met at the beach on the far western end of the island without encountering a single Japanese. The battle for Guadalcanal was over. All told, the Americans suffered 1,592 killed in action, an additional 4,183 wounded, and many more thousands stricken with malaria. Those were the casualties suffered in direct action against the Japanese, on the ground, or as a result of it. The number of sailors and pilots lost in support of the operation has never been tallied, though it's likely a similar number. As steep a price as the Americans paid to take the island, the Japanese suffered far worse to lose it. 28,000 Japanese casualties were inflicted in ground combat. 2,300 pilots and air crewmen were lost and untold numbers of sailors. By some estimates, the Japanese may have committed 50,000 men to the battle that they never got back, all for a tiny scrap of land in the eastern Solomon Islands. Many of the Marines who had arrived on the island in August had already departed by February and were enjoying a well-earned respite. They would soon go to Australia to prepare for the coming battles in the small islands north of the Solomon's chain. The war was still raging elsewhere, though. The campaign in New Guinea was wrapping up under General Eichenberger. He launched another attack at Bunagona on December 5th, which inflicted a heavy toll in blood, but did not succeed. He learned the same lesson as his predecessor. He needed tanks. The Australians had managed to take ground in Buna on December 9th, aided by newer artillery designed to penetrate bunkers. They suffered 500 casualties, but they did it. Eichelberger would attempt to make good on his portion of the operation again on December 18th. With the aid of newly arrived tanks and a battalion on loan from the Australians, he managed to take the town after two weeks of slogging fighting. On January 2nd, the town was his. Now all that remained was the town of Sananda. After initial assaults failed, the Allies essentially besieged the Japanese in the town until they ran out of food in mid-January. On January 16th, the Allies renewed their assault on the town and took it six days later. The tale of New Guinea was now firmly in Allied hands, 
and the immediate threat of invasion to the Australian mainland was gone. It had taken no fewer than the lives of 3,000 men and many more wounded over the course of the six months, but the job was done. The second act of the Pacific War was over. The Allies held the Eastern Solomons. Much fighting was left to be done, however. It would take another year to fight the rest of the way up the chain to isolate Rabaul. The Allies would never actually capture the Japanese stronghold. It had been just over a year since Pearl Harbor, and the Allies were beginning to make gains in the Pacific. On the other side of the world, in North Africa, a similar turning of the tide was taking place. Back in North Africa, Auchinleck, the Africa Corps, and the 8th Army had exhausted themselves, battling each other in the desert, first at Tobruk in Libya, then at Gazala and El Alamein in Egypt. On July 22nd, Rommel abandoned his 1942 Egyptian offensive. He had made it more than halfway to Alexandria from the Libyan border, but he was spent. In August, at just about the same time the Marines were landing at Guadalcanal, Bernard Law Montgomery relieved General Ritchie as commander of the 8th Army, and General Harold Alexander replaced General Auchinleck as commander of the Middle East Theater in Cairo. After taking command, Montgomery reviewed the 8th Army's plans for holding Egypt and decided he rather liked them, but he had to dispel his army of any hint of defeatism and remove the habit of defense that had set in after being driven back hundreds of miles from Cyrenica. When he found the staff preparing defensive plans for positions east of El Alamein, he told them to tear them up. Soon he assembled his commanders. He told them, quote, The defense of Egypt lies here, at Alamein. I have canceled the plans for withdrawal. If we are attacked, then there will be no retreat. If we cannot stay here alive, then we will stay here dead. In due course, we will attack. We will then finish Rommel once and for all. End quote. Montgomery needed time to prepare his men for the defeat of Rommel, however. In early August, they had just received new Grant tanks from the United States, and he needed to familiarize his men with them. He also wanted to work with the fighting spirit back into his men and train them up for the big offensive. He began by telling Churchill he needed six weeks to prepare his offensive, which Churchill accepted by the magnitude of Montgomery's personality and confidence. This delay would eventually expand to ten weeks. Monty, as he was now universally known, also needed time to make his staff and commanders his own. Commanders and staffs are not interchangeable parts, but really teams of individuals working together. You can't just throw a staff together and expect them to start churning out effective plans. They need time to gel with each other and with their commander. With Monty in particular, this was especially important because he had a rather odd way of keeping relatively junior officers and aides to camp as his confidants and companions. He didn't mess with the other generals and men his own age, but typically ate alone or in the field, preferring the company of younger men. At first, he received a lot of silent criticism from the old 8th Army men, but he would slowly replace them all so that only Monty's men were left, who all bought into his little cult of personality. Are you starting to see some similarities with MacArthur here? In the meantime, Montgomery trained up his men and prepared for the Battle of Alam el Halfa. Alam el Halfa was a neat little trap set up by 8th Army staff under Ritchie that Montgomery appropriated for himself and executed. Alam el Halfa was a ridge the British fortified, and the plan was to lure Rommel in, then destroy him. On August 31st, Rommel did as he was expected and attacked the ridge. This was not the Rommel and Africa Corps of 1941, however. The Africa Corps was fatigued after years of hard fighting, the harshness of the desert ceaselessly beating against man and machine. Rommel himself was in poor shape, too. He was sickly and needed constant medical attention, and was prone to succumbing from exhaustion. Nevertheless, 
he led his men into the fray at Alam el Halfa Ridge. 8th Army had 767 tanks, 713 of which were dug in around the ridge, 164 of which were the new heavy Grant tanks. 8th Army also had received an injection of new 6-pounder anti-tank guns, which were generously distributed throughout the formation. Rommel had only 200 tanks available, and was severely low on fuel. Of the 6,000 tons he needed for the operation, only 1,800 were sent from Germany. Lastly, the Allies had complete air superiority. You could fight a defense without air cover, but it is exceedingly difficult to go on the offensive without it, especially in the desert, where there is no place to hide. So the Africa Corps pushed eastward, but were bogged down by loose sand and minefields, eliminating any chance of surprising the defenders. The slow going also made Rommel's tanks easy targets for the Royal Air Force, who could strafe and destroy them at leisure. A chance sandstorm gave Rommel the cover he needed to survive, the RAF, and he turned his tanks northward toward the coast. Sickly and ill-supplied, Rommel no longer had the dash and daring of his earlier self. He could not overcome his disadvantages. He continued the attack on the second day on September 1st, but with one division out of fuel, there was nothing doing, and by September 2nd, he called it off. He was beaten, not decisively, but he had to protect himself. This was the most vulnerable the Africa Corps had been since it arrived on the continent a year and a half earlier. He slowly withdrew to the west, sure to protect his rear despite the constant artillery and aerial harassment until he was safely out of range. Here, Montgomery had an opportunity the 8th Army had not seen before. If Monty had possessed the same sense of opportunism that Rommel did, he may have seen the end of the Africa Corps right then and there. They had almost no fuel, they were fatigued and limping away. The time was ripe to counterattack and wipe them off the map. But that was not Monty's way. He was not an opportunist. He was a planner. What defined Rommel was his ability to seize the initiative and turn any slight advantage into a massive power play. Monty learned many lessons during the First World War, and one of them was that a timetable mattered and things had to happen according to a schedule, and defeating Rommel was not yet on the schedule. Besides, he needed to clean up his lines and bring forward his support elements. The defeat of Rommel and his Africa Corps was scheduled for October 23rd, seven weeks away. This was not some arbitrary date, but it was planned to coincide with the American landings in Morocco, codenamed Operation Torch. Rommel could not know it, but 13 days after the 8th Army attacked, another army would land to his rear and force him to turn away and retreat to Tunisia. This was Monty's insurance policy and it guaranteed him victory. That did not mean he would take it for granted, however. He would use those seven weeks to further train and prepare his men. He wanted his men to focus on small tactical engagements. Rommel, even in his deteriorated state, was still the Desert Fox, and Monty didn't want to give Rommel any room for maneuver. If the Desert Fox could escape from his cage, it would be chaos, and he could set the tempo. So Monty aimed to keep him boxed in, to set the tempo, and force Rommel to fight according to the timetable set by himself. During the lull, 8th Army would continue to receive reinforcements and supplies, and swelled enormously. By 2nd El Alamein, or just THE Battle of El Alamein, 8th Army was 220,000 strong, against the 96,000 strong Axis Army, 53,000 of whom were Rommel's Africa Corps. Montgomery also had 1,100 tanks, 270 being brand new Shermans, and 210 Grant Heavy Tanks. Rommel only had 200 outdated panzers and 300 Italian armored coffins. 
The German Mark IV could stand up to the newer Allied tanks, but Rommel only had 30 of them. Beyond their advantage in armor, the Allies also had plentiful artillery with lots of ammunition. The aforementioned 6-pounder AT guns and even some 105mm self-propelled artillery to keep up with the armor. Rommel only had 2488s left and some ancient art Italian artillery, which they hardly had any ammunition for anyway. Rommel would array his men as best he could, about 2,000 men a mile for a 45-mile front behind minefields about 5 miles deep, which sounds impressive until you realize that that was far fewer men per mile than Rommel had faced in the invasion of France in 1940, and that minefields on the eastern front were typically 15 or 20 miles deep. Next, for the Axis, they had no fuel to spare, so what little effective armor they had could not be employed in a maneuverable reserve, but instead had to be parked close to the front to react to local developments. There would be no armored reserve for the whole army. Not that it would be as effective as it had in previous battles, because natural barriers prevented an army-sized flank. To the north, the Mediterranean blocked the flank, but in the south, the massive Katara Depression, littered with salt marshes that are the bane of tanks. Worst of all, though, Rommel would not be present. His illness had gotten so bad that he had to be evacuated to a hospital, and General Georg Stuma would be in command. So at 9 o'clock at night, on October 23, 1942, the Eighth Army began their assault under moonlight. First, there was a massive preparatory bombardment, which the Germans did not answer. General Stuma wisely wanted to preserve his scant artillery stocks. Once the initial bombardment was complete, the tanks and infantry began moving forward, led by engineers clearing the way through the minefields. The engineers were not able to cut straight paths through the fields, however, causing them to wind and tank dead ends. This, when combined with the 8th Army's overabundance of tanks and infantry, led to horrible traffic jams when they reached dead ends. There were too many men trying to get through too few lanes, and Stuma used this to a devastating effect. When he realized the 8th Army was clogged in a morass of its own making, he hammered them with artillery. Throughout the day on the 24th, the Commonwealth troops endured the traffic jam from hell until nightfall brought some relief. Then fortune struck. General Stuma died of a heart attack, and Rommel decided to return to the helm at the news. At the same time, Montgomery had to do something. His men were held up and could not stay there. So he ordered the armor to either find a path through the mines or make one. Many of them did, but were then halted at the German defensive line. At four in the morning on October 25th, the armor culminated. The initial attack had failed, and the timetable was not proceeding as Montgomery had dictated. Monty retained his resolve and his resolute belief in victory, however. An outnumbered and outgunned enemy had halted them, but this was the infamous Africa Corps, after all, and a revitalized Erwin Rommel was leading them. On October 27th, Rommel demonstrated that the Desert Fox was back to his old ways. He counterattacked at Maitreya with vigor, leading his column of tanks from his command vehicle. Unlike the golden days of the Africa Corps, though, he was no longer facing the Western Desert Force, but the 8th Army under Montgomery. These men had ample close air support and plentiful anti-tank guns, which repelled his old panzers handily. Despite heavy losses, he attacked again the next day, was driven off by the RAF before ever engaging the enemy. Bloody and beaten, Rommel expected Monty to counterattack right then and there. That's what he would have done, after all. But the blow never came. Monty was busy putting the pieces in place for his final, decisive blow. That final blow would begin on November 2nd, under the guise of Operation Supercharge. That attack began at 1 in the morning with a massive artillery bombardment, 
followed by advancing engineers to clear lanes covered by infantry. Once the lanes were clear, Monty's armor would push through. He had 700 tanks to throw against Rommel's 90 remaining. The narrow paths of the lanes allowed Rommel to gain some local superiority over the lead armored elements, resulting in the last big desert tank battle of the war at Tel Alakir. A delay in Monty's carefully choreographed operation gave the defenders an edge as well. One of the armored brigades of the 1st Armored Division was held up and left 15 minutes late. This tardiness meant that the sun was rising behind them just as they entered into range of the German anti-tank guns, providing the gunners with a perfect silhouettes to fire at. Rommel's presence reinvigorated his weary veterans, and they struck hard against the 8th Army's footholds, preventing them from breaking out and wreaking havoc in his rear. More importantly, this gave Rommel time to disengage and begin his withdrawal west to save his army for another day. The first day of supercharge was a failure, and the second day would give Rommel another chance to demonstrate his brilliance. He needed to disengage while the enemy had the advantage in numbers, air superiority, fuel, ammunition, and terrain, a feat that maybe he would have been able to pull off if Hitler had not intervened. On November 3rd, the Fuhrer sent an order directly to Rommel to not retreat. So instead of withdrawing under those conditions, he could hold the line or attack. Rommel sent a personal envoy to Hitler to get him to countermand the order, but for now, he had to do something. Rommel threw his armor at the Commonwealth troops, trying desperately to throw them back. His tank thrusts were answered with deadly return fire from Monty's tanks, anti-tank guns, and artillery. It was a desperate measure, and not likely to succeed, and by the end of the day on November 3rd, Rommel only had 35 tanks left. The Africa Corps was a broken shell of what it had been. 36 hours after his no-retreat order, Hitler had countermanded it, but it was too late. Eighth Army had broken through. The armored cars of the Royal Dragoons had gotten out of the salient and wreaked havoc throughout Rommel's rear. This caused Rommel to begin withdrawing immediately. In the northern salient, the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders pushed out the morning of November 4th, expecting heavy resistance, but found only abandoned positions. Eighth Army was victorious, but Monty would take his time in exploiting that victory. Montgomery delayed an entire day and didn't begin his pursuit until November 5th, but a one-day head start was all Rommel needed. Several times Monty sought to cut off Rommel's retreat along the coast road, but each time he was too late. On November 6th, a massive desert rainstorm bogged down the desert, and Monty used it as his excuse for not catching Rommel, as if it had only rained on 8th Army. The Second Battle of El Alamein, or simply THE Battle of El Alamein, was over, and was a victory for Monty and his conglomeration of British, Australian, Kiwi, and various other Commonwealth forces. He paid a steep price for that victory. 13,500 casualties, and 600 tanks destroyed against only 1,000 German dead and 8,000 prisoners taken, and 180 tanks lost, either by destruction or functioning tanks being broken or tanks being left behind. The Italians lost 1,000 dead and 16,000 prisoners. Were Monty not so fastidious, he likely would have pursued immediately and caught the Desert Fox before he could escape, and ended the North Africa campaign right there. But he didn't, and Rommel got away, essentially making the whole battle meaningless. Because, really, why else would El Alamein have been fought? Montgomery and Churchill knew Operation Torch was coming. Monty could have just stayed in position and waited for the landings to force Rommel to retreat. He then could have taken back all of Egypt and the Libyan desert at essentially no cost. 
the only other reason to fight 2nd El Alamein was political. It would be the last battle taken on by Commonwealth troops alone. Once Torch happened, the war would be an American show, and the British would be the junior partners in the alliance. Churchill needed a win in El Alamein to have something to show for himself back home and ensure his political survival. 2nd El Alamein was almost a foregone conclusion. The 8th Army was going to win by sheer weight of numbers. The only question was how costly would it be? But it got the headlines that Churchill needed. General Alexander cabled, Ring the bells from Cairo to London, after learning of Rommel's retreat. And so they did. 